Kat. I'm Taylor. And welcome to Square Mile of Murder. Hello. Uh, a quick word before we dive into today's cult, because it is still cults month. Yay. Or maybe not, depending on your point of view. So before that, the British Podcast Awards are back. Or if you remember my inability to speak from last year, the British Cod Past Awards are back. So yeah, so those are back. And although we have not entered uh, the true crime or newcomers categories, because it was really expensive, um, <laughs> which are decided by a panel of judges, we are eligible for the Listener's Choice Award, which is voted for by you listeners, as as the name might suggest. Uh, so if you would like to vote for us in in that, uh, you can go to BritishPodcastAwards.com slash vote and search for Square Mile of Murder. Uh, you do have to put in your email address, but you don't have to sign up for their like marketing email list or whatever. It's like a weekly newsletter. It comes through on a Sunday morning. Yeah. So you don't have to sign up for that, uh, but they will send you an email with a link and then you click the link and then that's your vote. Uh, so there is there is an email element involved, but you don't have to like sell your soul or, or anything like that. Um, and also we should point out that you don't have to be British to vote. You just have to like a British podcast, i.e. technically us. Yay! <laughs> um, a voting closes on July 4th, and the award ceremony takes place on July 10th. And uh, if you'd like to go ahead and do that, which, of course, as always, we would very much appreciate, a uh, link to the voting page is, uh, will be in the show notes and in our like social media links as well. So check it out. Uh, it should be, should be there for you. And uh, yeah, uh, now cults. We are heading to 1980s Mexico this week as we continue our journey through the mysterious and murky world of cults, drug trafficking, and ritual sacrifice. My fave. Yeah, I mean, all those things together is fantastic. <laughs> With the story of Los Narcositanicos. Uh, but before we look at the cult themselves, we first have to go back to spring break in 1989 when 21-year-old Matt Kilroy disappeared whilst crossing the border from Matamoros in Mexico back into Brownsville, Texas. This is your no-eating warning, unless you've got a strong stomach. I don't think it's that gory. We haven't gone into too much detail because we don't like to do that. Um, but yeah, if you have a delicate constitution... Yeah, this is maybe not your episode. Well, just don't eat. Now, perhaps we should say this at the beginning of all of our episodes, but perhaps especially this one, like, listener discretion is advised. Yeah. <laughs> this is some dark shit. Yeah, and uh, also, uh, I mean, I speak passable tourist Spanish. You kind of speak a little bit. I, I speak French. Yeah, okay, you speak French. Um. Yeah, we do not speak Spanish fluently. We think we've got the pronunciations right. Yeah. If we haven't, you can take a running jump. Well, you can let us know. But we, I mean, I've listened to stuff about this case, so I'm 
kind of basing any pronunciations off of that. Well, we, we're pretty good with our Spanish pronunciations. That's the upshot of all that yeah. bullshit we just rambled about. Yeah. Taylor's probably going to cut most of it out. I, yes. Yes, I probably am. Probably starting with when I said you can all take a running jump. Yes, probably. <laughs> <laughs> we have to be nice to them. They're voting for us this week. We are nearly 70 episodes in. They know what they signed up for. <laughs> Here we go. On March 10th, 1989, 21-year-old Mark Kilroy's childhood friend Bradley Moore picked him up in Austin after they finished their exams, and they headed to Santa Fe, uh, Texas, not New Mexico, uh, to pick up two more friends, Bill Huddleston and Brent Martin. The group was planning to spend their spring break on South Padre Island, which is a, a tiny barrier island just off the coast of southern Texas, and uh, just a few miles from the Mexican border. Do you want to know how bad my American geography is? Sure. I forget that Texas has a seacoast. Oh, yeah. For some reason, I think that Texas has an entire, like the southern border is an entire, like the entire southern border is a land border with Mexico for some reason. Yeah. I forget about the, uh, the, East Texas. The Gulf of Mexico. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, for some reason, think that it starts at like, um, is it, Ar I wouldn't say Arkansas, or do I mean Louisiana? Alabama, which maybe. Whichever, whichever is the next state along that's got a sea coast. Yeah. Between Texas and Florida. I kind of just think that that's where... <laughs> The southern coast starts. Yeah. No. There's a big... See, but, like, that's the thing with Texas. Like, it's so big, and its border with Mexico is so big. The land border is so big that, like, I could see how one might think that. Also, they don't teach us U.S. geography. They don't teach us U.S. geography either, so you're not alone. <laughs> I learned down to Virginia and as far west as Pennsylvania... And then they were like, that's all you need to know. You're from New England. You're not expected to leave here. <laughs> you've, if you've gone that far, you need to turn around. <laughs> so, you know. So South Padre Island in the Gulf of Mexico, I believe. Yes. Okay, cool. Very close to the Mexican border. So like thousands of other students who are descending on the South Texas coast, Mark and his friends spent the first few days of their uh, holiday partying on the island and in the surrounding towns. On March 13th, the group had spent the day in Matamoros, just across the border in Mexico, before returning in the evening and attending a super classy event named Miss Tanlines near their hotel. I know it's the 80s, but... No. I like I think the 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 less said about that the better. <laughs> yes. And it was there that they met up with some old friends who were also spending spring break uh on South Padre Island. At around 10:30, the group headed into Brownsville and parked their car on the US side of the border and crossed into Mexico on foot. Mexico has much more lax uh, drinking laws than the US. The legal drinking age is 18 rather than 21, which to me is normal because it's 18. <laughs> Here, I mean, it's in some con like uh, continental European countries, I think it's 16. Yes. Yeah. Spain is 16. Uh, possibly, I want to say possibly France as well, but I'm not sure. So th this is very normal to me, but 
but you know, this is what makes it a very attractive destination for young Americans on spring break. Mm-hmm. You can literally walk across the border, get blitzed, and then walk, walk back. back, and you're not committing any crimes. Yeah. Uh, so Mark and his friends were amongst 15,000 US tourists who flooded into Matamoros that week. Like most of us who have been on big boozy nights out with friends, you lose each other over the course of the night. You meet up with, you meet new people. Some people like leave early. You might find, see like, oh, I didn't know you were out tonight and find people, you know. Yeah. I assume most of us have a story like that. I had a friend in LA who no matter where we went, no matter how many times we went out, after about an hour into the night, she would disappear and it would turn out that she had just taken an uber home without telling anyone <laughs> every single time when i was an undergrad um my friend one of my wonderful friends she is one of our patrons she will hit, possibly hate me for telling this story but it's infamous now um it was her birthday we were all out and so she she also had her friends from uni she grew up like in the or just outside the city where we were at uni so she had like friends from like home from growing up mm-hmm. and she also had like work colleagues and she just knew like everybody <laughs> so we lost her frequently throughout the night but then it came to a point i think about half one in the morning nobody knew where she was oh, shit. and like we were all very drunk and so we're all searching through this club, trying to find her. We eventually found her in the toilets. Oh, good. So apparently, me and one of our other friends found her and then just handed her to another group of friends because we were like, <laughs> you deal with her. Here, you take Cause this. She was, she, yeah, because she was absolutely paralytic. Oh, no. And we saw her like leave with a group of friends who were less drunk than us. Oh, yeah, yeah. And we were like, we know she's safe with them. Yeah. <laughs> But I have no memory of this. Oh, no. I, I remember looking for her, and then there was a whole lot of shit kicked off after she left. So I remember looking for her, and I remember it all kicking off. I don't remember finding her and handing her over. Because <laughs> apparently I was literally like, just like, yeah, you, you have this. Because <laughs> I was very drunk as well. I mean, you did the responsible thing, whether you knew it or not. <laughs> That's all that really matters, right? Yeah. But yeah, so... I would say most of us have had these kind of nights out. You've been there. But, you know, at some point, usually by kicking out time, or at kicking out time, you find each other again and you regroup. And that's the sort of thing that happened with Mark and his friends this night in Matamoros. At about two o'clock in the morning, the group found each other again. Uh, One of the guys suggested that they head back across the border to the hotel for the night. But due to the fact that they were all drunk and just the sheer number of US tourists just heading back into Texas at that time in the morning, the group once again got separated. There's a few different versions of how this happened, but they got separated. And that was the last time that Matt Kilroy was seen by his friends. Uh, Bradley, Bill and Brent, all bees. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, found each other just before crossing the border, and they spent the next couple of hours searching the streets of Matamoros for Mark, but they hadn't found him by 4.30 a.m. Uh, and so they 
assumed that he must have already crossed the border and would be waiting for them near their car, so they headed back into Texas. When the three men got to their car, they waited again for Mark, but when he didn't show up, again, they assumed that he must have gotten a ride back to the hotel or gone home with someone else, so they drove back to South Padre Island. I really hope they don't sob it up by this point. That's, yeah, that's what I was thinking, too, when I was heard this part of the story. Yeah. I was like, oh. Yeah, and also, this is, this is 1989. Very few people had cell phones yeah, at that time. Especially college students. Uh, when they woke up the next morning and still couldn't find Mark, uh, the friends reported him missing. But, as you can imagine, Mark's case wasn't exactly a priority. Because remember, it's spring break. Woohoo! And uh, students went missing in Matamoros all the time, just like in every big resort town, uh, popular with the 18 to 30 crowd all over the world. So you can imagine the kind of atmosphere this was. Mark was reportedly one of 60 people who had disappeared in the Matamoros area in 1899. Well, he might have been. (laughs) Wasn't there a lot of border dispute at that time? Yeah, yeah, (laughs) yeah. I'm sure a lot of people Just like whole towns. (laughs) Um, (laughs) God damn it. In 1989, uh, Mark's disappearance was treated as a normal spring break missing persons case. And usually missing students turned up within a couple of days feeling kind of rough with some fuzzy memories of the past few days. But when Mark hadn't turned up within a few days, people began to get concerned, and then his case became a much higher priority because Mark's uncle was an agent of the U.S. Customs Service, i.e. border control. The Mexican and Texan authorities began to suspect foul play, uh, but with most of the witnesses struggling to remember anything, the authorities had nothing to go on, and so they actually brought in a hypnotist. Hmm to see if any of Mark's friends could divulge any additional information. There's also varying sources as to how much cooperation there was cross-border. Because mm-hmm. in some cases, like cross-border missing persons cases like this, there's a lot of cooperation, and in others there isn't. So I don't know if there was cooperation and it was just sort of like ramped up once, you know, Uncle Border Patrol <laughs> was dropped in, was like name dropped. Yeah. Or if, like, I, I'm not really sure what was happening because sources do vary a lot in this case, as you will see in a few minutes' time. Uh, so Bradley Moore, one of the friends, revealed that he had seen a young Hispanic man who had scars across his face and was wearing a blue shirt Uh, who walked up to Mark saying something along the lines of, do I know you from somewhere? Mm. But he couldn't remember if Mark had responded or engaged in conversation with this man. As no demands had been sent, authorities quickly ruled out kidnap for ransom and focused on the idea that Mark had been kidnapped for robbery and theorised that he'd been dumped somewhere remote after being robbed. The Rio Grande Valley and Riverbed was searched on both sides of the border, so I think in this part the, the sort of the riverbed kind of forms a bit of a natural border Mm -hmm. between the two countries. I believe I may be wrong. Mm -hmm. The riverbed was searched, but nothing came of this. Mark's friends and family raised money from car washes and garage sales in... Ugh, I said garage. (laughs) I said it your way. (laughs) 
from car washes and garage sales in his hometown to help fund the search for him. And many of them traveled to Matamoros to help search and they handed out over 20,000 flyers. That's a lot. That is a lot. On March 26th, Mac's disappearance was featured on America's Most Wanted, and despite a number of calls from the public, no solid leads emerged. On April 1st, 1989, a vehicle ran through a border checkpoint from the U.S. into Mexico at Santa Elena without stopping. Authorities tailed the vehicle in an undercover police car to a ranch outside of Matamoros. Uh, Both the man driving the car and the ranch were connected to the Hernandez family, who were known to be involved in organized crime and drug trafficking. A search of the ranch uncovered some cannabis and drug paraphernalia, but nothing more. So authorities decided to investigate the family and their associates and activities in the hopes of getting them on something more than the cannabis possession. On April 9th, authorities returned to the ranch and arrested Serafin Hernandez-Garcia, the man who ran the checkpoint, his uncle Elio Hernandez Rivera, David Serna Valdez, and Sergio Martinez Salinas, as well as the ranch's caretaker, Domingo Reyes. When he was questioned in police custody, Domingo Reyes identified Mark Kilroy from a photo and directed the police to a shack on the ranch. In a separate interrogation, Serafin Hernandez-Garcia confessed to aiding in the murder of Mark Kilroy and several others who had gone missing in the area earlier in the year. But that wasn't all he told authorities. Uh, Serafin Hernandez-Garcia claimed that Adolfo de Jesus Constanzo and Sara Maria Aldrete Villarreal were leaders of this group and that they had ordered the others to find gringos to be sacrificed. I'm going to assume that people know... Do people know what gringo means? White person. Basically, basically means a white person. Yeah. Not Mexican. Yeah. Depending where in Central and Southern America you are, depends on whether it's an insult or an adjective. Yes. <laughs> so, Constanzo and Aldrete had ordered the others to find gringos to be sacrificed. Great. Uh, They claimed that these ritual sacrifices would ensure strength, abundance, and immunity from law enforcement and injury for those involved in the ritual. Uh, Some sources say that it also gave them invisibility, Mm. which is why they weren't scared to run the checkpoints, because they thought they were invisible. Mm. Mm -hmm. Serafin Hernandez-Garcia agreed to show the police where Matt Kilroy's body was. And it was buried under the shack on the ranch. He said that the spot was marked with a wire sticking up out of the body. And that this wire was attached to Mark's spine. So that when the body had decomposed, the bones could be easily removed and worn as necklaces. Which would give them extra protection. Mm. Yeah, it's not nice. No. On April 11th, authorities recovered the body of Mark Kilroy. And further excavations on the ranch unearthed the bodies of 15 young men who had all been killed within a nine-month period. So we'll pick up on Mark's case again soon. But first, we need to ask, <laughs> who were Adolfo de Jesus Constanzo and Sara Maria Aldrete Villarreal? Adolfo de Jesus Constanzo was born on November 1st, 1962 in Miami, Florida to Cuban parents and was brought up by his mother, who was just 15 when she gave birth to him. As a child, 
Constanzo's family moved to Puerto Rico after his mother married. He was baptized as Catholic and even served as an altar boy in his youth. But at the time, he often accompanied his mother on trips to Haiti to learn about Haitian Vadun. As well as being baptized, Constanzo was also blessed by either a Haitian Vadun practitioner or a Santeria priest or a Palo Mayambe practitioner. Uh, we don't have time to go into super great detail about Haitian Vadun, but we are going to presume that pretty much everyone has heard of voodoo. Uh, because it has been depicted in many forms of media for many years and often very inaccurately. Uh, Haitian Vadun is a polytheistic religion which developed in Haiti between the 16th and 19th centuries. It combines Roman Catholicism and West African religions whose practices came to the Caribbean with enslaved people from West Africa. Although it is closely related, Haitian Vadun is not the same as Louisiana Voodoo, also known as New Orleans Voodoo or Creole Voodoo, uh, which, as you might have guessed from the name, originated in New Orleans. Haitian Vadun is also separate from Santeria, which is an Afro-Cuban religion, which again fuses elements of Roman Catholicism and the traditional Yoruba religion that originated in what is present-day Nigeria. All of these religions have been wrongly kind of conflated with witchcraft and paganism. And according to Latino Life, quote, Santeria is about living the life that has been assigned to you in the best way you possibly can. Followers of Santeria may use various tools to protect themselves, such as spiritual baths or the wearing of sacred necklaces. They may also use various herbs to cleanse or protect or they may make offerings to their ancestors or to Orisha. And this does not equate with witchcraft, according to Latino life. And an Orisha is kind of comparable to a saint in Christianity, but they're not gods. Mm -hmm. So as far as I understand it, Santeria is, uh, only has one deity. Yeah. As opposed to voodoo, which is, um, or voodoo, which is polytheistic. So Haitian voodoo and Louisiana voodoo are similar in that, as far as we can find, the witchcraft links seem to have come from sort of a willful misunderstanding of these religious practices, especially Haitian voodoo. Mm -hmm. I think there is more of a witchcrafty element in Louisiana voodoo but not in like the traditional Haitian Vadoon. According to numerous sources, Constanzo's mother was a Santeria, which is a Santeria priestess. But again, the articles that say this also conflate Palomayombe, Santeria, Haitian Vadoon, and Louisia Louisiana Voodoo as all being pretty much the same thing or different, uh, different offshoots of the same religion mm -hmm. which they're not yeah which is why we don't know for sure which it was uh when constanzo was 10 years old his family moved from Puerto Rico back to florida but shortly after the move his stepfather died and the family was left with very little money so to help bring in money as a teenager constanzo began to apprentice with a local sorcerer and began practicing palo mayombe which is similar to santeria in that it is an African diasporic religion brought to the Americas as a result of the transatlantic slave trade. Uh, so like we just said, Palo Mayambe is often referred to as the dark side of Santeria, but uh, like Vadun, it is a separate religion and dates back 
actually much further than Santeria. Uh, Paulo originated with the Bakongo peoples in what is now the Democratic Republic of the Congo in Central Africa, and was brought to Cuba by Congolese slaves forced to work on Cuba's sugar, tobacco, and coffee plantations, uh, and over the centuries spread across Central America and into the United States. As with every religion, various offshoots and sects have developed, and Palo Mayombe is one of the, uh, those sects. Like Haitian Vadun and Santeria, Palo has fused with Catholic beliefs. Uh, Palo itself is a Spanish word meaning stick and is also known as La Reglas de Congo, which translates to the Congo rules. Uh, Palo does involve ritual f sacrifice, although like Santeria and Haitian Vadun, this is limited to small animals. However, according to the book Cults Uncovered by Emily Thompson, at some point in its long history, Palo practitioners did sacrifice humans, uh, but that has not been a part of the mainstream Palo practices for hundreds of years now. According to an article on Pavement Pieces, which is linked in the show notes, Santeria and Palo traditions and beliefs are similar. Tracing Santeria to the Yoruba is much easier because these Nigerian slaves were transported across the Atlantic as late as the 19th century. That direct line between Palo and the Congo is much more indistinct because enslaved Congolese people were transported to the Americas centuries earlier. Um, we're not gonna lie. We don't fully understand the complexities of the Palo religion or Palo Mayombe. Lots of the English sources, as we said before, conflate it with Santeria, Vadun, Voodoo, Witchcraft. And our Spanish is just not good enough to understand like the Spanish language sources, which are probably more accurate. Yeah. But we've done our best to kind of break it down as best we can. So one of the... Uh, important aspects of Palo is the enganga, which is a kind of like a cauldron or a big pot. It's usually wrapped in chains and contains sticks. And the tree that these sticks come from usually indicates like which sect of Palo it is. The enganga also contains bones, usually animal, but in some sects it includes human bones, sometimes sacrificed sometimes robbed from graves, along with blood, sand, soil, plants, and spices. So, according to Wikipedia, the bastion of truth, <laughs> uh, spirits of the dead are contained within the Nganga, and the so there's usually one spirit per Nganga. And the spirit can be used for both good and evil. As long as the Nganga is fed, then the spirit will carry out the commands of the practitioner, who is known as the Palero, Paleros often make use of various Ngangas, uh, adding different things to the Ngangas to enhance the spells and commands. Um, for example, it is believed that adding a bat's skeleton could give the spirit in the Nganga the ability to fly through the night undetected to carry out the Palero's wishes. That's pretty cool. Yeah. As long as it's like a nice wish. I mean, yes, like, wish conditional, but yeah. pretty cool. Uh, so where Santeria is focused on living the best life you can and making offerings to the Orishas for protection 
uh, is a part of that. Paulo Mayambe is more focused on instant gratification and by making offerings to the spirits, feeding the Nganga, uh, things will happen for you pretty much immediately. Santeria is focused on white magic as opposed to black magic, whereas Paulo Mayambe doesn't really differentiate between the two. And because of this, it can be used to heal and to harm. Uh, but we should point out that although Paulo Mayambe sounds quite dark or perhaps even a little bit evil, it is practiced very peacefully across Central America and the uh, Latinx di diaspora in the U.S. From a young age, Constanzo had been told he was the chosen one, which is always good, right? Never goes wrong. Yeah. Never, ever. Um, as a child and a teenager, he was told he was special and that he would go on to become the greatest ever practitioner of black magic. Cool. Uh, he and his mother both had a hell of a rap sheet for fairly low-level crimes, including theft, vandalism, and shoplifting. And both of them credited their respective religions as the reason that they weren't ever prosecuted or given custodial sentences. Uh, local authorities were frequently called after complaints from the neighbors about the smells coming from the family home, this is in Miami, as well as dead animals being left on doorsteps after altercations with the family. Authorities found 27 small animals being harbored in the home, in like tiny cages and just unfit conditions, and the floors and walls were covered in blood and feces. But eventually, casting low-level spells in Miami wasn't enough for Constanzo. And in 1984, at the age of 22, he moved to Mexico City, where he began a very profitable business casting spells and offering spiritual cleansings to the city's elite, including politicians and celebrities. But his client list also included many members of Mexico's organized crime groups and cartels. And also law enforcement. Yeah. Uh, according to the book Cults Uncovered, many of Mexico's drug lords were incredibly spiritual and superstitious. And so they turned to black magic practitioners to cast spells and cleansings, which would allow them to go about their drug trafficking in peace, undetected by the authorities. And Constanzo, it seems, was one of the best and most popular practitioners in Mexico City. Drug lords and those high up in the cartels would contact Constanzo, who would perform some kind of ritual or spell to protect the cartel and ensure they could get across the border into the U.S. without being arrested in return, of course, for a generous cut of their profits. When the runners were successful crossing the border, the cartel leaders kept coming back to Constanzo, believing in his powers, while not realizing that he also had many contacts among the police and Mexico's political elite, which was most likely what was helping these peaceful border crossings come to pass. And this is where Constanzo began to establish himself as a leader of sorts. He had a few followers, including Martin Quintana, Jorge Montes, and Omar Francisco Arreya Ochoa, who helped in his spellcasting business, as well as all of these clients who believed in his powers. Now, we talked about this in our Introduction to Cults episode a couple of weeks ago. One of the things that pulls people into cults is witnessing so-called miracles or displays of the leader's powers. And to his followers in the cartels, being able to smuggle drugs successfully into the U.S. was seen as a display of uh, the leader's power. Celebrities and the political elite also saw positive results after their sessions with Constanzo. And everyone, 
including Constanzo himself, bought into the idea that he was the all-powerful practitioner of black magic, as had been prophesied in his youth. And he even earned himself the nickname of El Padrino, which means the Godfather. Not menacing at all. No, it's fine. And this is where Sara Aldrete comes into the story. So Sara Maria Aldrete Villarreal was born into a middle-class uh, family in Matamoros, Mexico on September 6th, 1964. And although she lived in Mexico, she attended school, in t- like high school, in Texas. And in the late 1980s, she was studying physical education at the Texas so- Southmost College. <laughs> I love that as a college name. It's just Texas like Southmost College. The tex- I hope it's actually not the southernmost uh, educational institution in Texas. I mean, I don't think you get much further south. I mean, no, but also it would just be really <laughs> great, I think, if it wasn't. So Aldrete was a good student. She was a cheerleader. She was a straight-A student. She kind of had two lives because she was also fascinated with the occult, knew a lot about the Mexican drug trade due to her friendship with one of her classmates, Serafin Hernandez-Garcia, which apparently this is like really common for students in Mexico who study in Texas. They be- they have like essentially two lives, mm-hmm. like this student lives in Texas and then a very different life back in Mexico. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sara became a follower of Constanzo and one of his many lovers, both male and female, because Constanzo was a quote-unquote known homosexual, according to a Rolling Stone article. Yeah, known homosexuals back in the game. Yeah, I knew you'd like that. I love Although it. I would argue that it's just, you know, bisexuality or pansexuality queer because you know known homosexual suggests that there's something wrong with being like lgbtqia plus which there is not and no thank you we will not have that during pride month yes exactly i know i love how we've taken the month of june and it's no longer pride month for us it's cults month (laughs) which you know the gay agenda and and whatnot so really who's to say (laughs) We are a, a cult of gay joy. <laughs> yes, I have heard him referred to as bisexual. <laughs> I, ha- I have yeah. not seen no- known homosexual, but I appreciate it. So Sarah also tried to recruit, recruit new followers at college. She held film nights where she would screen the 1987 film The Believers. And then preach about the occult. But her fellow students were usually kind of drunk. And they just put it down to the crazy ramblings of a drunk person. None of them really took it seriously. Fair enough, I think. Uh, In 1987, Saul Hernandez Rivera, who was the head of the Hernandez crime family, died. And his brother Elio emerged as his successor. Uh, The Hernandezes were a large family from Matamoros with relatives across the border in Texas, and their main business was smuggling cannabis into the U.S. Now, you might remember earlier that Elio was one of the men arrested in connection with Mark Kilroy's murder, and that his nephew was Serafin Hernandez-Garcia. The same Serafin Hernandez-Garcia who Sada Aldrete was at college with. It was Sada who made the introductions between the Hernandezes and Constanzo. 
Uh, by this point, she was Constanzo's second in command, earning herself the name La Madrina, or the Godmother, appropriately enough. Uh, and she was often left in charge of the small cult while Constanzo was performing rituals for drug runners. And also, according to some sources, he was running drugs himself. Because you really shouldn't just have one source of income. You have to diversify your portfolio. Yeah. You never know when the occult business bubble is going to burst or the drug bubble is going <laughs> to... Are they ever... Are either or when of the DEA is going to move in. Yeah, yeah. So it's really best to, like, hedge your bets, folks. Mm -hmm. uh, the Hernandez family were so impressed by Constanzo's reputation and track record for keeping cartel members safe and undetected, they offered him a deal to move almost 600 miles from Mexico City to the ranch at Santa Elena just outside of Matamoros. Constanzo agreed after uh, arranging a deal in which he got a substantial share of the family's profits. And in 1988, he and his followers moved to the Mexican border town. After moving to Matamoros, Constanzo decided that the Enganga needed feeding more often, which meant finding new beings to sacrifice to it. But animals weren't working anymore. Uh-oh. Constanzo needed human blood. Uh-oh. Now, he may have been sacrificing people in Mexico City. We're not sure. Sources are very hazy, to say the least. But once he got to Matamoros, Constanzo and his followers were definitely preying on humans. To start with, the group kidnapped and murdered members of rival gangs. But as the months went by, Constanzo became more selective about his victims. Because remember going back to the bat? Mm. You know, the bat skeleton helps you move through the night in silence, things like that, undetected. So in one instance, a young boy his followers had abducted was crying, which is no surprise. And Constanzo was concerned that using this boy's blood would make the Nganga sad. Great. Yeah, this is, this is the kind of thinking we're dealing with. Yeah didn't stop him murdering this young boy after all didn't want to get caught which he probably would if they let this boy go and that brings us back to march 1989 when constanzo decided he needed someone of a greater in uh, a greater intelligence for his anganga so he sent two of his followers seraphin hernandez garcia and malio fabio pons torres into matamoros to find a gringo university student who could be sacrificed and his blood fed to the Nganga. By the time they were arrested, Constanzo's followers were so convinced by his powers that they had no fear about confessing their crimes to the police. They cooperated and showed them to the shack where the bodies were buried, because they were so convinced that Constanzo's powers uh, would protect them and keep them out of prison, the same way he and his mother had ev evaded prison when he was a teenager. Meanwhile, uh, Constanzo and Aldrete managed to escape to Mexico City with a number of their followers, and they managed to evade capture for another month. Struggling to locate Constanzo, the police reportedly consulted a Palo expert who told them to burn the Nganga on live TV to draw Constanzo out. <laughs> what the police actually did was burn the entire shack to the ground about two weeks after Constanzo went on the run. But that ultimately did little to aid in the search for the missing leader. On April 24th, two of Constanzo's followers, Victor Manuel Antunes Flores and Salvador Antonio Villalutz, were arrested when they 
were found hiding in one of Constanzo's properties in the Juarez neighborhood of Mexico City. On May 6th, the police surrounded an apartment building in Mexico City in response to a reported dispute. Uh, But when Constanzo spotted the police car, he thought that they had tracked him down. And he opened fire on the police and passers-by with a machine gun. Oh, shit. He also threw handfuls of cash out of the window, shouting that everything was over. Okay, so Uh, if you can avoid the machine gun, you might make a little cash. Yeah. Uh, The police called for reinforcements, uh, cleared the immediate area, and then they just waited it out at a safe distance. And when he ran out of ammunition, Constanzo did what all good cult leaders do when they're cornered by police and don't want to face any consequences for their actions. He convinced one of his followers, Alvaro de Leon, to shoot him and his lover, Martin Quintana, uh, telling Alvaro that he would suffer in hell for eternity if he didn't do it. Bummer. Yeah. Uh, When police finally entered the apartment, Constanzo and Martin Quintana were dead, and Alvaro de Leon and Sara Aldrete were arrested along with three other followers, Omar Francisco Arreo Ochoa, Juan Carlos Frangoso, and Jorge Montes. Aldrete tried to flee the building, telling police that Constanzo had said, let's all die, but she wasn't ready to die. (laughs) On May 15th, a judge denied all the cult members bail due to the fact that they were wanted for crimes which accumulated to more than 50 years in prison. Wow. On June 2nd, Salvador Vidal Garcia Alarson, a police chief of the Federal Judicial Police, or the Federales, uh, was indicted for drug trafficking, and it turns out that he was one of Constanzo's police contacts. Yeah... Yeah. In August 1989, Omar Francisco Orea Ochoa was admitted to the hospital where he was diagnosed with AIDS. Uh, he was the lover of both Constanzo and Aldrete, but neither of them were HIV positive. Uh, Sarah Aldrete later claimed that he had been injected with infected blood while in prison. In August 1990, uh, Alvaro de Leon was convicted of the murders of Constanzo and Martin uh, Quintana and sentenced to 30 years in prison. Uh, We don't know if he's been released or we also don't really know what has become of any of the other cult members. Yeah, because he would have been coming up for release last year. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Who's to say? If you know, let Mm. us know. Um, Juan Carlos Fragoso and Jorge Montes were convicted of murder and sentenced to 35 years each. The ranch caretaker Domingo Reyes was accused of criminal cover-up, but was released in December 1990 after posting a $500 bond. Also in 1990, Sara Aldrete was sentenced to six years for criminal association And at a second trial in 1993, she was sentenced to an additional 62 years for a number of crimes, which we will list in a minute. Uh, If she is ever released, she will be extradited to the U.S. to stand trial for Mark Kilroy's murder, uh, at which time she would be 94. In May 1994, Serafin Hernandez-Garcia and his uncle Elio Hernandez-Rivera, along with 
David Serna Valdez and Sergio Martinez Salinas were each sentenced to 67 years in prison for murder, possession of narcotics, involvement in organized crime, police impersonation, illegal body desecration, illegal possession of firearms, and illegal possession of weapons exclusive to the Mexican Armed Forces, which has a maximum sentence of five years. There is a reason I've only I've left that five years in. <laughs> and not the individual years for the rest. In 1998, Elio Hernandez Rivera, David Serna Valdez, and Sergio Martinez Salinas' sentences were reduced to 50 years, which is reportedly common in Mexico as life sentences and the death penalty are not used in, Mex- in the Mexican legal system. Apparently at the time that was quite normal yeah. to have your sentence reduced to 50 years. Because it's a life sentence, you're probably not going to get out. But you yeah, know. probably not. So... Their sentences were five years longer than Sara Aldrete because she was not charged with possession of weapons exclusive to the Mexican Armed Forces, but she was found guilty of all the other charges that those four men were. Oh. So it was that five years for the Armed Forces weapons yeah. that made the difference. Interesting. So we don't know what happened to Victor Manuel Antunes Flores and Salvador Antonio Villalutz, the two men arrested at one of Constanzo's properties in Mexico City. Malio Fabio Ponce Torres and Ovidio Hernandez, who was the brother of Elio and Saul Hernandez, are both still on the run and wanted in both Mexico and the US for various charges, including the murder of Mark Kilroy. Uh, Following the arrests and convictions, there was no desire by the authorities on either side of the border to investigate the disappearances from Matamoros any further, and the case was closed by the Mexican authorities, although it does remain open on the US side in case any of the court members are ever released, and then they can be extradited and tried in the US for Mark Kilroy's murder. And... That is the case of Los Narcos Satanicos. Wow. I hope you enjoyed my wonderful Spanish accent. I mean, same. <laughs> Thoughts? Feelings? Desire to bleach your brain? Yeah, that one. I will say that, like, we have definitely gone light on the detail oh, uh, yes. in this episode. And... Like, if you want to know more of the specific details of, like, what these guys were up to, that information is out there. And yeah. sort of knowing that, to me, it, it, it's, like, it's that much worse. Like, it's already really bad that they're going mm. around and, like, A, like, manipulating people, right, with the whole... um occult spiritualist like predictions and 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 all that sort of thing and then you have the murders and then you layer on top of that the like ritual stuff that was happening torture torture, human sacrifice that kind of thing it's like really Mm -hmm. really really bad and yeah yeah, and if you if you do want to know all the details, um, there is a podcast that's just called Cults. Yes, by the Parcast Network, and they do a two parter. Yeah, on 
uh, on this case, I think plenty of the sources that are actually linked in the uh, like the show notes, the episode description. I think a lot of them go into a lot more detail. Yeah, it's really rough, and like I do think that it's a really interesting cult because, well, so so far we've talked about like specifically the Oneida community, which as far as we know, no murders happened in. No. Um, and a lot of sexual abuse and pedophilia, but no, no murders. murders. Um, and we sort of mentioned in our introduction episode, places like, uh, people's temple and, um, the Branch Davidians, Heaven's Gate, like that sort of thing. So there, so those those cults, uh, especially like People's Temple and, and Heaven's Gate, uh, have more of the like mass suicide, yeah, murder kind of blurred line kind of thing. Yeah, and they were definitely more of like doomsday cult. Whereas these guys were just living in the moment. Yeah, these guys were just like, hey, we need to sacrifice these people for, you know, Bob's, you know, uh, fortune-telling episode. Drug run tomorrow. Yeah, like, <laughs> so um, I think that's, and it's a small group as well. Yeah, and what's interesting is they didn't have, like, they're called Los Narcosatanicos, but... That's a name that's been given to them by the press yes. and by uh, sort of commentators yeah. um, on this kind of black magic ritual sacrifice yeah. awfulness. Yeah, because like... They didn't have a name. They Obviously they had a leader in, um, in Constanzo and sort of a second in Aldrete, but... They weren't organized like another kind of cult mm-hmm. would be. But also, Constanzo, I think, was 26 when he died. They're all really young. They're young, yeah. Yeah, like he um, he sort of started this when he was like 20. Yeah. Um, And I think uh, Sarah Aldrete was, was a couple of years young, so I think she was like 24 yeah. when she was arrested. It it kind of reminds me of Charles Sobrage. Mm, yeah. Or even like a little bit like Manson, but kind of let I don't know if less out there is the appropriate term when you're referring to human sacrifice, but No, I think we're really out there. <laughs> we're out there in a different direction. Hmm. Um but yeah, it's it's sort of more along the lines of these like quote unquote family groups. That stay quite mm. small, but then kind of do a lot of damage in the process. Yeah. Yeah. And like, we don't even know who all the cult members were. Yeah. It's kind of, there was no further investigation into the cult. So they didn't even like call themselves like a cult. They were just following Constanzo. Yeah. So we don't even know how many other cult members there were. We don't know who Constanzo's clients were. Yeah. Um, and I would wager to guess that one of the reasons that it wasn't investigated 
super hard afterward is because a lot of his clients were in law enforcement or yeah. or the cartels to the extent that law enforcement did not want to get involved with it. Yeah, well, he had to have some contacts in Matamaros on the borders yeah. and in law enforcement. Also, it's... And you do see this quite often in a lot of places. These cases get closed very quickly because they're tourist destinations. Yeah, and they want you wanted to clean it up. Yeah, yeah. Tourists don't want to go to where there's been like human sacrifice. Yeah, it's oh yeah. There's a gang just kidnapping people on holiday and sacrificing them. Yeah, I'm not going to go there. Kind of harsh is the vibe a little bit. Also, what's interesting, well, not interesting for you know, it kind of follows on from what you said. We have no idea who the other victims were, because police didn't care to look. It was only when a middle-class white mm-hmm. man went missing, who had, you know, whose uncle was, you know, part of the border force, you know, someone with these connections. It wasn't until he went missing that this really got looked into, mm-hmm. which again goes back to the fact that they had contacts in law enforcement and in... um sort of border patrol yeah for sure yeah the, was it fif- when it was 15 other bodies or 15 total hmm it might have been 15 in total it might have been 15 others even so, so it's either 15 you've or got, 16 you've got teens of people missing yeah. like and just yeah and because they were just lo- most of them were just local people yeah who weren't important didn't have the contacts they're literally the less dead nobody cared yeah which which is proven by the fact that we don't even know who these victims are yeah which is really a shame Mm. especially because they were so brutalized yeah just awful great just awful yeah um okay so on a lighter note don't want to sound like dismissive but right i am sure that i first heard of this case on forensic files right mm-hmm. the you know the disappearance of of matt kilroy i am 100 percent sure i have seen a forensic files episode about this case cannot find it anywhere on the internet <laughs> it's missing like I've been like trawling through all the episode lists on Wikipedia trying to find something that sounds similar. <laughs> yeah. And even like the the Wikipedia page on um uh, Matt Kilroy's murder and on Constanzo, neither of those like they've both got like a, a section for like media because there's been like films based on mm-hmm. the stories and various documentaries and things like that. And I can't find it listed in any of those, so I think I'm going mad. But I am sure <laughs> I have seen it. And if it's not on, like, I am sure it's on Forensic Files because I can hear that guy's voice, you know, the narrator's voice. Yeah. Like, I can hear it. I don't know. We're going to have to find out. Keep searching until we find it. Uh, so that brings us to the end. Cult, yay or nay? I don't know on this one. Mm-hmm. I I feel like like yes because it's a powerful charismatic leader 
convincing his followers to basically do his bidding. But again, it's kind of blurry and, and it's not it's it's definitely not a like organized cult. Yeah. It's like you said before, it's definitely more along the lines of like Manson or yeah. who was the other one you said? Charles Sabrage. Sabrage, yeah. Yeah. It's definitely more along those lines. Though we never really consider did we even consider Charles Sabrage in the cult sphere? We didn't talk about it in his episodes, but well, we did. We did talk about how like similarities with the Manson family a little bit, I think. Uh, but I can't remember. I would it's a few months ago. I would think that he would technically fall on under that. Well, I don't know that. That like these groups are really tricky. I feel like because it's mm. mostly a serial killer and his accomplices. Yeah. So then you have to decide, is that a cult or is that just a band of murderers? I don't know. See, I think I would class them both as cults yeah. because you've got them, they're living together, you know. Um, they lived in in this, this shack yes. in Matamoros. Yeah. They lived in Me Mexico City. They're not on the fringes like uh, Manson's family were. Mm -hmm. Or not so much on the fringes. Um, and they've definitely got lots of contacts. So they're not as removed from society as like other cults. Mm -hmm. But I would still class them as a cult. They've got this, you know, they're using Palo Mayombe, this a very twisted version of it. Mm -hmm. They've used that to justify murdering people yes yeah and as you say you've got your charismatic leader who they were all so convinced in his power they were like oh yeah we did all this this and this like they confessed yeah i think that's maybe the thing that tips it over because it's like it, it, they've witnessed his miracles like his clients mm. witnessed his miracles and so like that's part of it mm. I, there's a bit in that cult's um episode or one of the two episodes where one of his followers saw him survive walking off a third story balcony and then told at what, well, you know, supposedly like told everyone the story and that, you know, he must be magical because of this. Like, so that, I mean, and I think that's, and again, the veracity of that story is unclear. Mm. But they mentioned something in, in that podcast where it's like he was really good at using like the old tricks of the trade in kind of like fortune telling or, you know, future casting or whatever to convince people that he knew a lot about them, which then got them yeah. over to his side or whatever. And then by sort of using his connections in law enforcement or using his sort of knowledge of people or psychology, you know, quote unquote psychology or whatever to then mm. perform these miracles or these sensational events. Yeah. And, and that is really what like convinced people to, to hang out with him and to do his bidding. So I, I think with that in mind, definitely a cult. Yeah. 
I would say cult. Well, there you go. We're agreeing. Let us know. Yeah. Cult or not. Do you, do you, yeah. Was it cult? Was it not? I don't know. I mean, we just said, but what do you guys yeah. think? We, we have our opinions. Yes. Uh, but as always, we would like to know yours. And on that note, if you like the show and you'd like to share your opinion about the show, uh, be sure to rate and review us on your podcast app, especially Apple Podcasts, and subscribe so you never miss a new episode. Uh, and if you want to get some cool Square Mile merch, we do have a selection of awesome products with cool designs, and you can find those at the link in our show notes or on our website. If you'd like to help us cover the costs of making the podcast and help us invest in the future of the show, you can join our Patreon page. Tiers start at just £1 per month. Every patron gets regular episodes a day early, a shout out on the show, priority case requests, and a lifetime merch discount. And that's just for £1 a month. As the tiers go up, you get even more, including bonus episodes and exclusive Money Can't Buy merch. So check that out at patreon.com forward slash square mile of murder. Links are in all the usual places. Yeah, uh, and we will be back next week for episode 70? Yeah. Holy crap. Uh, with a Scottish cult situation. Mm, very interesting. Yeah. So we hope to see you then thank you for listening we'll see you then bye, bye.